And Mr. Pennick, you have some rebuttal time. Thank you, Honor. I think the state is failing to understand the legally cognizable interests here. This is not an ideological opposition to the statute, although there's plenty of that. This is the legally cognizable interest is the constitutional right to acquire a handgun. And it really doesn't matter why the person feels that the state has uh, interfered with that right. The, it is undisputed that the handgun qualification license prevents that person from acquiring a handgun. And unless he jumps through all the hoops and costs imposed by the regulatory regime. So I'd like to point out a hypothetical to make this point clear. Suppose instead of guns we were dealing with, we were dealing with the rights of a voter. And the state of Maryland, in its infinite wisdom, decided to impose a permitting system on the right to vote, where you had to get a permit issued by a state agency, had to get pay a fee for that permit, had to have four hours of instruction by a state certified instructor, had to get fingerprinted. And would this, any member of this court hesitate for a moment and holding that the voter did not have to actually apply for the permit or pay the fee in order to bring a facial challenge to that permitting system that interfered with his right to vote. The same hypothetical could be used for any number of First Amendment rights, the right to abortion. The harm here is on the exercise of the constitutional right. That he may not know the caliber of the gun he would like to buy is kind of beside the point that he may not have investigated. This is pointless because it's a futile exercise to investigate something you can't exercise when the state stands in the way. Welcome to another episode of the Good and Substantial podcast, where we talk about all matters of things affecting your rights as Marylanders to keep and bear arms. This is Danny coming to you. With me, we have Stephen. How you doing, everyone? Katie, say hi. Hey, Danny. Thanks for having me again. Happy to have you, of course. And it's great to be here as well. We actually have a very special episode here for our, our listeners, for all the MSI members and uh, everyone who has yet to MSI, uh, join MSI. Of course, we'd love to have you. We have MSI President Mark Pennick uh, with us today, here to talk about the law, to talk about future cases, uh, MSI's cases, and all things having to do with the Second Amendment. Mark, welcome to the Good and Substantial Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Danny. Um, why don't you give yourself, uh, many people might not be familiar with who you are and your background. Why don't you uh, give us an uh, introduction of yourself? Okay. Uh, I've been a president of MSI since September 2016. I was the board member and vice chair of the MSI prior to that time. I became involved in MSI back in 2012 after the district court Willard decision and uh, in the 2013 uh, so-called gun safety after 2013, the General Assembly was uh, being considered. So that was my first real intro into Maryland Second Amendment law. But I retired from the Department of Justice after 33 years as a litigator uh, in uh, the fall of 2016. And I have been litigating ever since, mostly on behalf of MSI and various courts of appeals and state courts. And it's uh, been a lot of fun. It's fun if you like litigating, but that's what I do. And that's what I've always done, and I can't help but enjoy it. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Mark has also been 
he has been representing MSI. He has been the main voice of MSI before the state legislature for the past number of years. And uh, many of the members of the legislature have gotten to know you pretty well. Isn't that right? Uh, in one way or another, yes. I have some pretty good relationships with uh, some members of the General Assembly. Uh, and the, I think other members of the General Assembly view us as opponents or adversaries, which is unfortunate. But other p- people who are actually are, are grateful for our input. As unfortunate as it might be to have adversaries, they do know us. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they know us. It's hard to ignore MSI these days because we sue. <laughs> and that has a way of getting people's attention. And we promised to sue. And this last General Assembly, we were in a back room and at the Senate Judicial Proceedings proceeding. And said, well, this will be an easy suit to bring. And I laid out how we would bring it. And they all look at me and says, you just argued the Fourth Circuit decision in this, the Bumstock case, didn't you? I said, yeah, that was fun. And so they all kind of groaned. So we kind of got our way on that session, too. So we get credibility because what we bring to the table is a lot of knowledge about firearms that no one in the General Assembly really has. And so we, they listen to us, even though they don't really necessarily like us that much, because hard facts are hard to ignore. And not that they don't from time to time, but we make it difficult for them. It's it's fun for that reason. And our our threats to sue are not idle, empty threats. Uh, we we're no, oh they figured that out. Yes, um, we're currently MSI is currently involved in litigation challenging Maryland's enactment of its uh, bump stock uh, ban, so called rapid fire tr- trigger activator ban. We Forget. don't challenge the necessarily the right of the police power. That's not a second amendment issue. What we have challenged in the case are two things. The first is their ban on possession by existing lawful owners of these devices, and they don't pay just compensation for the ban on possession. We think that's a fundamental violation of both the takings clause of the United States Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, and the takings clause in the Maryland Constitution. And there's also a vagueness issue, because the Maryland legislature, in an infinite wisdom, banned all devices of any type that when attached to a firearm increased the rate of fire of the firearm by any amount of any firearm. So and, oil? Uh, well, you could, I'm not sure that a device is, can, oil can be a device, but oh, device is not defined. So we'd have no idea what a device is. I think a better example would be uh, replacement of a return spring in a semi-automatic handgun. Uh, if you replace it, and they do wear out, I mean, I've replaced mine from time to time, and after 10,000 rounds, you really ought to replace them. And that might microscopically increases the, uh, the return rapidity of the, of the receiver. But inherently, rate of fire as applied to a semi-automatic handgun or any other type of handgun, short or machine gun, is an unintelligible criteria. They don't have a rate of fire. For a semi-automatic firearm, the rate of fire is as fast as you can pull the trigger. For bolt-action rifles, as fast as you can work the bolt. For a shotgun, a slide, a pump action, it's as fast as you can pull that slide back and forth. 
So the rate of fire has an Indian definite meaning. No one knows what it means. And by definition, a, a statutory standard that utilizes uh, a term that varies from person to person to person is inherently vague. And the Supreme Court in recent decisions in the last several terms has insisted and indeed struck down a number of federal law provisions as too vague to apply and has established a whole lot of new law about that. And we have utilized that law in pressing that vagueness claim as well. That, or was, that case was argued in the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, that's the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, in January 29th. And we still don't have a decision, although I expect one fairly soon. Now, the other case we're up in the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit is the uh, handgun qualificationalized case, which the district court in Maryland dismissed the pro without reaching the merits and said that uh, we don't have standing. In the federal law, you have to have uh, standing, which means you have to be hurt by the regulation statute in order to be able to bring suit in federal court. It's called a case in controversy department of, the, of uh, Article 3. And the district court said, oddly enough, it argues that in order to have standing to challenge the, the constitutionality of a handgun qualification license, you actually had to apply for the handgun qualification and be denied and thereby inflicting the very harm on yourself that you sought to avoid by the lawsuit itself. Now, that was argued by video conference um, on May 6th. And that, with that, we, we got a very favorable reception by the Fourth Circuit. So I'm very optimistic about that case. The, the earlier case is hard to tell. One judge in the, hang, uh, the Rapid Fire Trigger Activators case, I hate to say bobsaw case, because it's much bigger than just... Oh, yes. And uh, that one judge thought we didn't have a final order because the judge didn't say dismiss with prejudice. He just, the judge just said dismiss. Of course, the judge also said, ordered the clerk to close the case. And that usually means dismiss with prejudice. Dismiss with prejudice means you don't get to refile it. You don't get to file a motion to amend the, the complaint or do anything else. And then the recent Supreme Court case that came down just this week called Lomac said that when a judge dismisses, it is presumed to be with prejudice unless the court otherwise orders. So that's the default rule. So we sent a 28, what's called a Rule 28J letter after the Federal's Appellate Procedure to the court saying, by the way, that jurisdictional concern you had, an oral argument that consumed 12 minutes of my 20 minutes, well, that's just got answered by the Supreme Court. So that's off the table. For, for those that uh, don't know, who haven't listened to the audio, um, in that case, the the judges really did, um, particularly one judge really threw you a procedural uh, wrench and yeah, you spent oh, oh like three quarters of your time having to fend that off, and it was actually the state who actually brought things back to the merits. Well, the, the other two judges didn't seem troubled by the one judge's uh, predilection to focus on the finality of the district court order, and but that district judge, I think, concerns uh, the court of appeals judge's concerns were answered by uh, the Supreme Court's recent decision in this case called Lomac. So I don't know if there's anything that prevents them from reaching the merits. We got a very respectful view of a reception, at least by Judge Richardson. The other two judges didn't really opine on the merits. But Danny actually traveled all the way down to Richmond to watch that argument. So 
thank you for doing that, by the way, Dan. Hey, I, so, I, I wouldn't have missed it. And uh, had this um, most recent argument in HQL not have been on video chat, I would have been down there for that too. But, you know, there's this uh, pandemic thing, wouldn't you know it, going around. I, I heard about that. Yes, it's true. So uh, I love oral arguments. I've done about 100 of them in the federal courts of appeals across the country. So it's they're always a challenge. Each one is always going to be different than the last one. So it's uh, always uh, interesting to see how its uh, particular argument pans out. Uh, this last argument we had about our standing to bring the HQL litigation was actually very favorable. So we uh, judges actually were on board with this. One. You had an allegory um, towards the your closing argument that there's really no way to view if the same requirements of the HQL litigation, or I'm sorry, HQL license were put upon, let's say, voting. Yes. How how could one make the argument with a straight face that you would actually have to try and go through all those requirements first to be able to exercise your right to vote? So the hypothetical I put to the court was if the right to vote had been conditioned by the Maryland legislature on getting a four hours of instruction by a state certified instructor, paying a fee for a license to the state, paying uh, for the instruction and the training out of your own pocket, getting fingerprinted by the state in order to cast a vote. I suggested to the court there wasn't going to be a single member of the court that would hesitate for a moment in recognizing the standing of the voter challenged on the face of it those kind of requirements without ever having to undertake that process. And I think the analogy is direct, and you can apply the same analogy to any number of other constitutional rights, such as First Amendment rights. And what the district court seemed to think is that you had to actually apply in order to have any harm, that's a fundamental error in our view as to what the right itself was involved. Under controlling Supreme Court precedent, you don't get into the merits question standing. You look into whether or not the person has suffered minimal harm to a uh, legally cognizable interest. In this case, our legally cognizable interest was the constitutional right to acquire a handgun. Not even the state denied that there's a constitutional right to acquire a handgun. They just said you didn't have standing unless you actually jumped through all the hoops. The hoops is what their lawyer called it. And hoops they are. But that's just silly because the whole idea is that you shouldn't have to jump through the hoops to challenge on the face of it the statute that unconstitutionally burdens the exercise of the right. And you don't look to the merits of that claim. You look to whether or not there's been an allegation that you've been directly regulated. It's a case called Lujan that says normally one presumes that if you're directly regulated by the statute, or the regulation at issue, then you have standing to challenge it because you've been regulated by it. And that was the point I pressed hard on in during the argument. That's kind of where we were with that argument. That went out pretty well. So I have a, a quick question about uh, the, the standing. So were, are they asserting that you would have to apply and be denied to have standing or that you just would have had to have gone through the process and received it uh, to have standing? Well, they weren't very clear as to whether or not you actually had to be denied. They would said you had to apply and pay the fee in order to assert standing. Uh, and they didn't say it had to be denied. But, of course, you can't even apply for the HQL without getting all 
all the harm that we associated so with the statute itself, which is getting the trading and getting the fingerprints and then paying the application fee. So by the time you're done actually applying, you've actually suffered all the burdens we said were unconstitutional. So what the district court didn't realize is that in the cases on which the court was relying, the plaintiff actually wanted the fee, the license that was at issue. The analogy is, for example, if you want a, a carry permit, you actually have to apply for a carry permit before you can challenge the constitutionality of a carry permit. And that's because you want the, something that uh, could be mooted out if you actually were to apply. But facial challenges shouldn't have to apply. And certainly on, on something like this, you shouldn't have to apply. Uh, we didn't want the license, and I made that clear argument. Nobody in, on the plaintiffs actually wanted a HGRL. They wanted they were asserting the right to acquire a handgun without the HGRL. In the carry permit circumstances, no one's asserting the right to uh, carry the handgun without the carry permit. That's usually with um, something that's conceded that the state can condition this with a carry permit. Now, that's an open question, but in all the litigation thus far, that has been the underlying uh, position of the Plato. Our plaintiffs and MSI, because MSI is a party, are asserting that MSI's members and individual players were all entitled to acquire a handgun without jumping through all these hoops at all. And that was the constitutional right that had been infringed by the burdens. And need not, for standing purposes, need not be any specially large burden. It could just a minimal injury. The Supreme Court has, for example, sustained standing where the injury was as little as 50 cents or a dollar and a half or five dollars. And of course, we had also with us the, on the case is the Atlantic Guns in Rockville and Silver Spring. And the statute prohibits them as well from selling a handgun without uh, HQL being possessed, physically possessed by the purchaser or would-be purchaser. And so they said, we're also regulated by this, and we've had to turn away customers, and we've lost money which is a classic standing injury. We've actually had economic harm associated with this uh, regulatory scheme. And the district court simply ignored that in the large measure. So, and the thing about this was, this was on a procedure posture of summary judgment. And in summary judgment, court doesn't sit to resolve disputed issues of fact. It must through the, the factual allegations and the factual the proof that one's either, either side is put in and accept it as true for purposes of deciding whether there are any material issues of fact. And if there are material issues of fact, there's a dispute whether landing guns, for example, lost sales. Then it goes to trial. But you don't resolve that on summary judgment. And there was ample proof of that uh, Atlantic guns lost sales. The, the proof on this was enormous that 40,000 applications had been started uh, for the handgun qualification license and had, people had given up, given up in the process of actually trying to get HQL because the requirements were presumably too difficult to do. We had students who, who, who gave up halfway or just stopped even, even after they took my class. Yeah, because oh. it's all online and it's hard. Now, I do remember... Uh, wasn't one of the concerns of one of the plaintiffs' privacy? Well, it was. And one of the things that the Atlantic Guns said was that uh, we don't want to reveal the names of the customers who actually 
we turned away because they don't want people to know that we're trying to buy a handgun because in some parts of the state, it's uh, people owning guns is not viewed uh, as appropriate by people who are misguided. So they were seeking to protect the identity of the individuals who had to turn away. And of course, there's no reason for them to actually keep identities of that because these people were frustrated. And thus never filled out the 4473 ATF form or the Form 77R, the state police form, because they didn't have the HQL to start with, couldn't complete those documents without it. So the fact that the owner of Atlantic Guns, Stephen Schneider, testified directly without contradiction that he had to turn personally people away who wanted to buy handguns and couldn't because they didn't possess a handgun qualification license. So that's the classic economic harm for the dealer. So it's, the state of Maryland is really in a completely un, legally untenable position. We tend to think that the district court got rid of it because the district court didn't want to deal with the merits. And the standing was an easy way for the court to dispose of it. Uh, and that's not uncommon, by the way. But standing argument is just so wrong. So the state police added this regulation and made the applicant for HQL fire one live round. Now, you're, we're all instructors. I'm an instructor. I think all of you guys are instructors. One live round doesn't teach anybody anything, except you know, like, a cartridge goes boom when you press the trigger. And you don't need to have you hear the boom to know that it will happen when you pull the trigger. So there's no training. Um, and even the state's expert agreed that there was no training benefit associated with requiring people to fire one live round. The whole thing is silly. Well, what it does do, however, is make it difficult for people to get the handgun qualification license because you have to go low range to fire one live round. Almost the entire urban part of Maryland, most of Montgomery County, virtually all of Prince George's County, all of the city of Baltimore, a big chunk of Baltimore County, big chunk of Howard County, it is illegal to fire one live round of ammunition anywhere other than on an established range. Now, there are only a few established public ranges in that whole area, and most of them are private. There's a few public ranges. I think there's one in Montgomery County, Gilbert's. Uh, There are two in or near Prince George's County, but there are none in the city of Baltimore. For example, if a resident of the city of Baltimore wanted to get the handgun qualification license, they would have to arrange to go outside the city of Baltimore and find a range, a public range, or a range that the structure has access to outside the city. That itself imposes an enormous burden on, the, on people who don't necessarily have the means to do that. Not to mention the cost of uh, the application, the cost of the instruction, and the time associated with it. So I don't know about you, but I normally am not a taxi cab, so I don't provide transportation to my students for the HQL. Uh, so they have to find a means of getting uh, out to a range room which the one live round can be fired. It, it, the whole uh, thing is designed to be a, a burden. Oh, unquestionably so. I I personally teach the HQL class, and um, it's always a, it's always an adventure every time because I have to find uh, the time to teach it, and then I have to find a location to teach it, and then I have to figure out how I'm getting my students up to the the range where I take them. I'm a I'm a private instructor, so I can't compete against other instructors, uh, you know, on their on their ranges. So it's always a, it's always a challenge. This whole thing, 
Um, and the longer it takes me to arrange a class is the more time that the student is unable to protect themselves. Uh, well, and plus the fact that, you know, it's not academical for you to give class or, or instruction on an individualized basis. Uh, so most instructors do this for the compensation. They're free to charge whatever they want, but they're not going to have private classes unless they charge a very large amount for that, which makes it even more difficult and more expensive for people. So they have to wait until a class is came to some. Since we are in an interesting time, I, I suppose that the record really can't be updated in the current litigation, but uh, just a, a casual observation of, of you going to any gun shop right now, and you're going to see tons of handguns in the racks and in the counters, but you're going to see a huge lack of shotguns and rifles behind them. Uh, shotguns and rifles are in short supply right now. People are concerned about, about mm-hmm. civil unrest or, uh, or what have you. And, you know, we already had this pandemic, um, and now we have the fallout from the death of George Floyd in, in Minnesota. And there's reactions to it. So people are, people are worried. And all of a sudden, if you look in any rack, you can only find handguns. And the obvious explanation is that, well, the HQL is stymieing people from exercising their right as observed in Heller from getting a handgun for their personal protection. Which is yeah. a quintessential self-defense weapon. For you yeah, I, I know my local gun shop, you can go, they have a number of pistols. He cannot get defensive shotguns. He cannot get ARs. Uh, no one's willing to buy, you know, a $1,200 shotgun yet to have in their home but he just constant stream of people that he's having to turn away that don't have an hql have no idea what it is that they needed to buy one and uh, restrictions are being lifted for social distancing right now but it's still a little bit difficult to find a class and spend the money and people have been you know out of work uh you know it's it's definitely highlighted that this is a huge problem in this state yes Yes, exactly. So, I mean, the dealer said that his handgun sales plummeted after the enactment of this requirement in 2013, and, and for an obvious reason. It acts as a barrier, a very powerful legal barrier to the purchase of them. And it's enforced by the dealer because the dealer will lose his license and potentially go to jail. I mean, people don't know this, but if he made a sale of a handgun in violation of this statute, the penalty for doing so is five years, five years in prison and $10,000 fine. Wow. Which is, oddly enough, more than stealing a firearm in this fine state. <laughs> oh, by a huge margin. By the way, if you steal a firearm, it's treated like the theft of any other piece of personal property of like value. So if it's a firearm less than $1,500, it's a uh, misdemeanor. And I will tell you, because I've looked at the numbers, that the Sentencing guidelines in the state that uses require, uh, basically mandate uh, probation for the first offense. And you know, for the second offense, probation. Third offense, probation. So the person who steals a firearm faces absolutely no penalty. And those firearms that are stolen almost often use crime because that's why they're being stolen. So what we're saying to our listeners is really they might as well just steal handguns instead of having to get the HQL to buy one. <laughs> Well, I would not say that. <laughs> I certainly would not say that because our stealing is illegal. That's wrong. So you don't do that. Okay, I'm so, kidding, of course. Of course. I hope so. <laughs> Jenny, I don't know about you. <laughs> Nobody does. Yeah, hmm. 
MSI this past session with all the craziness, we actually urged our members to support a bill that would upgrade the theft of a firearm from, as Mark said, you know, a misdemeanor, as long as it's under $1,500, to a felony. Which, I mean, if you think about it, there's absolutely no reason that one would steal a firearm unless they had ill intent. Well, see, that's the the great irony. You could steal a firearm, and it's not a prohibiting offense under current law. So you could steal it, he could get caught, and he would get to slap on the wrist and and no jail time. But that conviction, even if he was conviction, would not disqualify him from going off and buying a firearm. If it was changed to a felony, that becomes a disqualifying offense. For life. That's a disqualifier for life, which, I mean, would be, you know, it it would be in the General Assembly's best interest. Well, of course. And I I made that point to the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, and I said, well, this is silly. You you guys can't even uh, impose a sentence or a penalty that is a disqualifier when you're stealing a firearm for a good reason. And yet you... You uh, basically, for an error made by the dealer or someone else, uh, you would send them away for five years? So where's the proportionality on this? So where's the over-criminalization of the harmless actions as opposed to actual wrongdoing, theft, that you punish with probation and don't even attach a serious sanction with respect to the future possession of firearms? You know, it didn't make a lick of sense. So what's interesting to me is that the bill that actually made it through the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee and got passed by the Senate I think, was actually, we were successful in that, and that the Senate agreed that that should be a felony. Unfortunately, the House never took it up. Yeah, I found that, I found that interesting um, because, I mean, it, it seems like it would be in everyone's best interest, but I wonder what was going on in the House's mind. Maybe maybe some other things uh, they were trying to push through kind of took precedence and it died in a drawer, especially with the abbreviated uh, session. You know, I think the House, it's hard to understand the House. They seem to be highly politicized and ignoring the facts. So for, for example, they wanted to attach a, in the bill that actually passed the House the loan of a long gun, ordinary shotgun. They would be punishing that by five years in prison. And that's how, how it passed the house. A loan of a, of a long gun. So if you loaned your uh, long gun to your neighbor who wanted to take it for goose hunting, that would put you and your neighbor in jail for five years. If you loaned your sh- shotgun to your spouse and left the house, you would both go to jail for five years. Think about that. In the home, unless. Five years is a, a very long time. I mean, that's that's a, a pretty huge penalty. That's greater than most people spend in the state for uh, actually committing assault. <laughs> right. So even, even if you weren't actually sentenced to five years, the fact that it's punishable by that length of time is a permanent disqualifier under both federal and state law. Anything in excess of two years, if it's punishable, not punished, but punishable by more than two years, is a permanent disqualifier under federal law. And that's just if it's a misdemeanor. If it's a felony, it's one year. One year. Even if it's just a misdemeanor, so if it's punishable for more than two years, you may not possess constructive or otherwise, which means you can't be in possession where you could actually take control of it. And that means in your home or elsewhere. Any modern ammunition or any modern firearm. I read an interesting court document 
saw it online that somebody actually titled an argument uh, for nonviolent felonies about how Martha Stewart cannot own a gun and why she cannot own a gun. Sure. She was convicted of a thousand. Um, Insider trading? Well, no, she was convicted of perjury, which is uh-huh. uh, not perjury, but it's a false statement to a federal office. And that's punishable 18 U.S.C. 1001. Uh, and that's a five year uh, crime. Oh, wow. Prison. So that's it, interesting enough. That is what General Flynn was convicted of. Well, he pled guilty to it, then tried to withdraw his conviction, his uh, plea. And as long as that plea sits out there, as long as he's under indictment for that, he may not possess a fire. I, I think that's also, um, I know it might be a little out, but that's, you know, same that the same thing that happened to George Papadopoulos and some of the others of the of the Trump campaign earlier on. And if I have this correct, every single one of them is a prohibited person. I don't know if the rest of them were actually tried and convicted or even charged with. I don't think George was charged. Uh, so that's uh, you have to be either under indictment or charged uh, and or otherwise convicted of this. crime. So. I think General Flynn's the only one actually pled to it, or was actually charged. So uh, I don't know that George Papadopoulos was ever, ever convicted of that. MSI is also involved in other litigation, uh, including our what's under our hallmark of our name, shall issue. We have a challenge to the Maryland Wear and Carry uh, statute in regards to goods challenging the good and substantial reason. Where does that stand, Mark? Well, unfortunately, uh, the plaintiff in that particular case, uh, Mr. Whalen, uh, represented himself before the Handgun Prevent Review Board. And during that time, he actually argued before the uh, board, he did not make the constitutional argument. Now, after he was denied the permit by the board, he contacted us and was apprised of his rights, and he made all the constitutional arguments in his challenge to the board's decision before the circuit court, which is a trial-level court in Maryland. And all those arguments were repeated and, and emphasized on appeal from that circuit court decision to the Court of Special Appeals. But the Court of Appeals held that, uh, Court of Special Appeals held that because he didn't present this argument to the court, uh, to the board, and that they were, had been waived, constitutionality argument had been waived. So what I'm trying to suggest to people when they applying for the permit, they must make these arguments before the administrative body. And that means must make the argument before the Maryland State Police. Because all appeals from MS, uh, MSP decisions are now going to directly to the Office of Administrative Hearings, which is uh, the board itself was eliminated by uh, act of uh, Maryland General Assembly. So he has to, and that office, the Office of Administrative Hearings, are, will not entertain an argument that hadn't been presented to the underlying agency, in this case, the Maryland State Police. And then you have to make that argument again before the Office of Administrative Hearings. And then you have to make the argument again in the circuit court. And then you have to make the argument again in the Court of Special Appeal. And then once again, if you go you hire to the Maryland Court of Appeals. Otherwise, it's deemed waived. I mean, it's now, just this is not in the statute. This is all in the case law. There's no way anyone will know this if they're not a member of the Maryland bar. Well, what's what's so uh, distasteful about this whole notion is 
when I went through the application process and I was interviewed, I was asked by the investigator, okay, besides your Second Amendment right, why are you applying for a carry permit? It's like they're trying to get you to let go of that when you're going through the process, at least in my case, my investigator did. It's, it's important for you to have as many reasons as you can, but if you just raise it and present it to them, uh, that at least preserves it. And now we all understand, of course, the Maryland State Police will ignore that, but if it's in the papers, if it's in the application itself, and the argument is fairly presented, and then at least it's not waived, and, which, and thereby avoiding the, the result that we had uh, in the Wayland case, of course, Special Appeals. And they said, look, this case... Uh, raises the same issue that is before the Supreme Court now in a case called Malpaso versus Maryland. And Malpaso's challenge is that the facial validity of the good and substantial requirement is like uh, the Willard decision did. But what happened to bring the Malpaso case before was that the D.C. Circuit in the Wren case held that this May issue good cause requirement was unconstitutional. We now have a square circuit split on that question. So the NRA, through its local uh, facility um, affiliates, have all brought suits in the three circuits where there were prior circuit precedent on this, the fourth circuit, the second circuit, the third circuit, saying that there's a now circuit split, we want to go to the Supreme Court, apply your prior circuit precedent, and so we go to the Supreme Court. And those cases all have now arrived at the Supreme Court save for the New York case, which is still pending for the second circuit. So that actually will be orally argued soon. So that will be it. Uh, and that issue is still pending for the Supreme Court right now. Yeah, the, uh, the Maryland case, for those that don't know, Malpaso, that was brought forth by our friends with the, our good friends with the Maryland State Rifle and Pistol Association. That case presents the same issue, which is the constitutionality of, of the special need requirement or good and substantial reason requirement. Now, also pending is a case called Rogers, which has been pending since last term in the Supreme Court, uh, challenging the New Jersey special need requirement. And since then, the Massachusetts has upheld their special need requirement. And all those cases are now pending the Supreme Court document. And in fact, there are five challenges to the special need uh, requirements. And uh, two of those challenges, three of those challenges, are, I think, are from New Jersey. The other two are from uh, Maryland and New Jersey and New York, um, no, First Circuit, Massachusetts. So they have five cases in front of them that they can pick if they wanted to resolve the conflict with the, uh, between these cases and the D.C. Circuit's decision in Wren. There are other cases pending with the Supreme Court, which are so really interesting. For example, there's a Wilson case which argues that Illinois, which has become shell issue, can't limit their uh, carry permits to Illinois residents as they have effectively done. And there's another case called Pena versus Lindley, which uh, challenges the micro stamping requirement imposed by California law. And then there's another case called Mance out of the Fifth Circuit which challenges the, the ban, federal ban on interstate sale of handguns. So please don't buy your handgun from out of state. Hmm. It's a felony. Well, if you do, have that FFL, ship it to your home state FFL, pay the transfer fee, and follow federal law. The purchase doesn't take place until it's actually transferred to your home state FFL. So 
you that's how it normally because you your home state ffl actually does the 4473 and 77r the out-of-state ffl does not he just ships it to your home state FFL. the only people who are allowed to transfer handguns uh, across state lines or ffls by the way don't try to sell your handgun on private sale across state lines federal felony a lot of a lot of the questions before the Supreme Court also center or hinge upon the standard of review for uh, the legal standard of review of how these cases were handled in the circuit courts, um, the district and circuit courts. Can you explain the, what standard of review is and and preferably which which kind of standard we would want in Second Amendment cases? Sure. People don't understand this about the courts, but the standard of review is hugely important because it sets the legal test by which the courts apply uh, to the uh, legal question whether or not this particular statute is a constitutional. Now, what the, all the courts of appeals have, have done is apply tiers of scrutiny, here, intermediate scrutiny, or, or in the man's case, strict scrutiny, to determine whether or not the, it's a balancing test, basically, whether or not the state's interest in public safety is outweighed by the, the burden on the, on the constitutional right asserted. And guess what? Every time when that balancing is done, and balance it against the uh, Second Amendment. And in contrast, in Heller and in the Supreme Court decision, McDonald confirms this, is they didn't apply any balancing test at all. The court didn't say, uh, you don't apply intermediate scrutiny, you don't apply scrutiny. said, under any standard of review, a complete ban is unconstitutional. And, and did so by reference to the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. And now Justice Kavanaugh, when he was a D.C. Circuit judge, said in dissent in a case called Heller II, uh, said that he believed that Heller and McDonald uh, do not permit the use of a balancing test or tiers of scrutiny inquiry, but required to determine the, the constitutionality of a state's restriction on the best text history tradition. As applied to the carry permits, the, the text says that the right is not only the right to keep, but also the right to bear arms. And as Judge Poser said in the Seventh Circuit call, case called Moore, bear means to carry. And Heller also said bear means to carry in case of confrontation. So that doesn't make any sense to limit that right to the to the home. So the courts kind of poo-poo that, saying, well, maybe it applies. We'll assume that it applies outside the home. But the core is really just the home. And anything outside the home is less important. Because it's less important, we get to apply intermediate scrutiny. By the way, the state has a substantial interest, good enough. And the courts have misapplied even intermediate scrutiny. And it's really watered down rational basis review. What's the argument for, a lot of people say, oh, well, text history and tradition isn't a meaningful test or a meaningful way to measure anything. And they would argue that you, we would want strict scrutiny applied in all Second Amendment cases, similarly to how First Amendment cases are, are viewed. Uh, what's, what's your opinion on that? One, strict scrutiny wasn't followed in Heller, so there's really no support for it. Uh, it's only been applied once in a Second Amendment context, and that was in the Mance case. And guess what? They upheld uh, the federal statute That's under right. strict scrutiny. So it, it's still a balancing test. You don't need to have that kind of balancing. All that does is empower judges to vote their gut. 
well, this is a kind of a not very important issue because that is, after all, outside the home. So we all know that's not important. Um, and the state is, it, interest here is really strong because, you know, it, there will be blood in the streets for sure. We got people carry firearms. So. I mean, everyone just yeah. knows that you cross the border into Pennsylvania or West Virginia or Virginia, yeah, Delaware. Yeah. It's just total, just rivers running red. You know, I love that. Ten percent of the adult population in the state of Pennsylvania have carry permits, and yet the crime rate and murder rate in Pennsylvania is a small fraction of that in Maryland. You take the biggest city, Philadelphia, their number of murders is far less than Baltimore, even though the population of Philadelphia is more than twice as big as Baltimore. And yet somehow, somehow the carry permits have never been a problem in Pennsylvania. And never been a problem in the other 42 states that actually give, shall issue our constitutional carry. There are 13 states where you don't need any permit at all. None of those states have received so-called blood in the streets. So the idea that carry permit holders are somehow dangerous is belied by the facts. They're less likely, and everybody concedes this, to uh, more less likely than police officers commit a crime with a firearm. Well, as, about that. And, well, as we heard before the legislature, uh, that just means you don't like police officers, Mark. Well, I, <laughs> well, I, I heard that. I kind of, what? <laughs> no, I said, well, no. And this means that carry permit holders are probably the safest, most vetted people on the face of, of the planet because they're heavily vetted, background checked, fingerprinted, and um, very carefully vetted. So who in the world would you want more to have a firearm than those people? And overwhelmingly so. If you if you have a carry permit and you are carrying every day, you aren't looking for trouble. You're, If anything, you're trying to avoid more trouble than you were before you were oh, able to carry the gun. You are running away from trouble. You know, I, I teach that, that's the course for carry permit. The first legal advice I give them all is you have a special obligation to run away from trouble. Because in Maryland, the law is that outside your home, you have a duty to retreat before you may employ deadly force. And if you start the problem, either by mouthing off or doing something else, or part of the problem, combat, then you lose the right of self-defense entirely. Aggressors need not apply. Aggressors lose it. They go down. So if you're smart, you will bend over backwards to try to avoid the situation where you actually have to deploy firearm. I had heard... Don't very careful. I had heard uh, commentary that even if you are in a place, you know, Maryland, there is a legal duty retreat if safe to do so outside of your home in regards to self-defense. But even in a state where there is um, stand your ground, where there, there exists no duty to retreat, I had heard it said that if you do not take your avenue of safe retreat and engage anyway, you are an idiot. Um, but you are an idiot. <laughs> now, in, in, in D.C., there's no duty to retreat. The, the failure to retreat is taken into account as to whether or not uh, there was a, a real threat. So it's considered. The other states, and Virginia is one of that, there's no duty to retreat at all. You may stay on your ground as long as you're not at fault. But I will tell you this. You will be arrested, more likely than not. You will have to retain a lawyer. So even if you beat it and you don't get charged, you could still be civilly sued, in which the affirmative defense is 
that you have to prove. So the reality is in the criminal context, if you present some evidence, which could be your own testimony, uh, that you met each one of the criteria for self-defense, and the burden of proof switches over to the state to disprove at least one of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt. But in a civil context where somebody's suing you for wrongful death, you have to carry and bear the burden of proof on all of those evidence. And if the jury disagrees with you and thinks it's more reasonable than not, as honest of the evidence, that you one of those elements fails, you're going to be civilly liable and not could bankrupt. And it should be said, in some of these cases where uh, we have had cases where people have injected themselves uh, into a third-party encounter, and that's really up to their morals. What are the what kind of risk are they willing to accept? Um, you know, well, I, don't, I, I don't know that I could stand idly by if someone was getting murdered me murdered next to me because I had a safe avenue of retreating from it. I, don't, I personally don't know what I would do in that time. Well, Maryland law allows you to defend the life of another. If it was reasonable to believe that their life was in imminent risk of death or of severe bodily injury. That's the test. You can come to the defense of another, and it doesn't have to be related to you that person but and it's only if it's a reasonable person would yes. feel that. so you could be wrong still enjoy that defense but you've just put yourself through hell in the process because the legal proceedings alone will be hugely expensive and traumatic so that everybody mm-hmm. does have to answer is it worth it to me to come to the defense of somebody that i don't know if i'm going to put myself and my family through that kind of traumatic experience. Yeah, and that's a hard one. Yeah, it's not quite as glamorous as the movies might make it seem. It's not glamorous at all. I mean, if we're, if you think about it, any any gun owner, any concealed carrier, they, like you said, they're not looking for trouble. They're actively avoiding trouble because not only do you have the legal side, you have the psychological and emotional side. Yeah. You'll have to live with the results of a justified self-defense shooting, should it ever happen for the rest of your life. And I mean, that's, that's something that I've, you know, every gun owner has to really think over. And I hope they think it over ahead of time because you won't have time to mull over the, the psychological and philosophical implications of deadly force at the time. This is something you really need to think about long ahead of time. And I tell my students that if you don't think you can deploy a situation after giving a long thought, you shouldn't carry it all. Yeah, it's, that's something everybody has a different answer to. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's quite a serious thing. You're carrying a lethal instrument upon your body. If you're not willing to use it, you should probably be questioning yourself why you're carrying it. Well, you shouldn't be carrying it because more likely than not, if you don't use it when you should have used it, it will be taken away from you and will be used on you. You don't deploy. You don't actually bring it out of the holster unless you, it's legal for you to use it. In other words, you have force what self-defense elements are being met. And doesn't mean you have to use it or should use it. Maybe that person's seen it, turns around and runs away, and then you don't have to. And you shouldn't, because then you lose the defense too. But you should be prepared to. If you think you can bring it out and scare somebody off, and that'll be the end of it, well, that may happen that way, and it may not. The, the sad thing here is anyone who's gone through the trouble of applying for a carry permit in Maryland knows, unless they're a business owner or they have a special clearance or some other special requirement that uh, would, you know, a reasonable person would think requires them to carry, like they're moving money or, or what have you. One of the other criteria for getting a carry permit here 
is that you've already been the victim or you've been targeted to be the victim of a crime. So you have to survive the crime to be able to get a, a carry permit. And then if you plead this case before the legislature, uh, I, I heard a member of the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee a few years ago ask someone who testified uh, and said that they had a carry permit. They asked them if they ever actually had to use it. And when the person said, no, thankfully, I haven't had to use my firearm, the legislator was using that as a point to basically impeach their argument that it was necessary to carry a firearm at all. Which is a, a very false assertion because you never want to have to use it. You don't carry anticipating that you will use it in case you carry in case you have to use it. And no one wants to use it, no sane person. The idea of, you know, I have this discussion with my spouse and with others who know that I carry, and I say, look, uh, I don't want to use it. I hope I never have to use it, but if I have to use it, you're going to be really glad that I could use it. You carry it in case you have to use it. That's right. It's no different than a fire extinguisher. While we're waiting for the fire department to arrive, if we have a way to put out a fire, we should put out the fire. <laughs> well, yes, if you have, because otherwise you may burn to death. So not like you you don't need it unless you have to use it because that kind of defeats the purpose of being able to prevent the harm that you want to keep from happening and to me part of carrying a firearm would be you know having situational awareness and being aware of where you are and what's surrounding you and you know that could be what what part of town you're in at what time of day that you know, you're going to avoid putting yourself in situations where you're more likely to, you know, encounter a threat. Obviously, that's not going to apply to, you know, all situations. You know, you're going to try and, and make those good decisions so that you don't have to use it. Yes, yes. In fact, most courses, and certainly the courses I teach on carry, we spend an enormous amount of time talking about situational awareness. And I use the odor loop serve, uh, orient, and decide, and then act. Uh, try to make sure that you're aware of what's going on around you so that you may orient yourself after observing it. And you can decide what to do and then act on what to do. Thank you. If you do all that all the time, you won't have to necessarily ever have to deploy the firearm that you carry. But you at least have the option. If somebody takes you by ambush or surprises you because you're not paying attention to your surroundings, then the, you could have avoided that by being aware of your surroundings and escaped before you had to use it. So I'm going to circle back to the, we have this wonderful lawsuit tracker on our website, marylandshellissue.org, and it tracks uh, Supreme Court, District Court, Circuit Court, State Court uh, lawsuits. So uh, kind of a question that uh, I'm not clear on, I feel some of our listeners may, we see um, this GVR. So, like, there was just a case uh, for the Supreme Court, Beers versus Barr, status GVR. So, uh, can, I believe that's grant, vacate, remand. Um, yeah. I know I'd love to know a little more about what exactly that means and what happens. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would too. So, a case is GVR. Granted, the Supreme Court assumes jurisdiction over a case by granting certiorari. Certiorari is a discretionary grant. Uh, and then the Supreme Court can assume jurisdiction, and then they can decide what to do with it. So a GVR usually occurs in a situation where the case uh, is preceded by another case of the same or related point. 
legal point. And the case then becomes, uh, that case is decided, and what the Supreme Court will typically do in that circumstance is that they will take the related cases which are pending before them on petitions for certiorari, and they will grant the petition, vacate the lower court judgment, and that by vacating, that means that the lower court judgment is thereby rendered non-precedential, no longer binding. It is uh, nullifies it, and then reminds it, remands it back to the lower court, usually a court of appeals or a state court, Supreme Court, to say reconsider what you did in this case in light of what we just decided in this other case. So that is a, a huge plus because it allows the Supreme Court to get rid of an awful lot of cases that present a same or similar question. Now the Supreme Court has often, ultimately, decided a case after GBR and goes back to the lower court, they decide it again, and then there might be a, another petition for cert for what the lower court did on remand. And sometimes the Supreme Court takes cert again and then actually reaches the merits. The court is fond of saying, the Supreme Court is fond of saying that it is a court of review rather than first review. Uh, in other words, it wants to have lower courts look at and decide these questions uh, ahead of time, so it doesn't look and have to decide them brand new without lower court consideration. Supreme Court lights heavily on decisions of the lower courts, of courts of appeals especially, to basically set the framework. They often call it percolating uh, along the lower courts before it actually reaches the point where it receives Supreme Court review. At that point, the Supreme Court will resolve any circuit conflict or um, decide whether or not the lower court actually applied the proper legal tests properly. So it's a, it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon which the court does a lot. And another case is Cantano versus Massachusetts, and it's listed there too, where the uh, Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts said the stun gun uh, was not a protected arm uh, under the Second Amendment. And the Supreme Court, in a summary decision, it's called procurum, said, you're ignoring the reasoning of Heller on these for these three reasons, so we're going to vacate what you did, and we're going to tell you back, uh, to remand it back to you, and tell you, apply our precedent faithfully. And on remand, in that particular case, the court reversed itself, said, well, having now been instructed by the Supreme Court to consider this in light of these principles articulated in Heller, we now hold that a stun gun, stun gun is, in fact, a protected arm. We're going to vacate uh, a conviction that was at issue in that case for actual possession of a stun gun. Massachusetts banned the mere possession of a stun gun prior to that case. So the GBR is a big part of the Supreme Court's docket. I think, unfortunately, a, a lot of people got a, t a little tiny taste, though not exactly the same, um, of this in regards to New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus City of New York when that was mooted out. Well, that wasn't really a GVR. What that was is a decision that the case was moot because the City of New York had repealed the statute of regulation that was a, had been challenged in the underlying uh, suit and the state of New York, just to make sure, passed a statute that said, city of New York, you may not reenact that statute. So they were trying to be sure that there was no risk that the city of New York would reenact the statute after the Supreme Court decided the case. So because this goes back to standing in cases of controversy, when a case is moot like that, in other words, there's 
the plaintiff no longer has a stake in the litigation because he's essentially won because the other side has surrendered by repealing the statute of challenging. The court need not decide the case because there is no case or controversy anymore. And so that's what happened in the New York City case. And there was a dissent in that by Justice Alito, uh, joined by Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, said we disagree with that holding, but they were in the minority. So that's what happened in that case. That wasn't a GBR so much as it was a, uh, a Munsingware? decision on the merits. Well, Munsingware is a Supreme Court case going back in the 50s. Munsingware is, it says if the case becomes moot on appeal, our what we normally will do in that search is that we will vacate the lower court decision so as to deprive it of precedential effect. And that's called a Munsingware order from the end of that case back in the 50s. And the Munsingware order says, we're going to boot this out, we're going to vacate the decision so it no longer is binding precedent in the lower courts or anywhere else. And we're going to tell you to dismiss it because it has now become moot. Because the lower courts don't have uh, any power to adjudicate a moot controversy either. So that's what uh, will happen in the city case. But it's the decision on the merits of mootness. If you, so that's, uh, again, if you have to maintain a case of controversy and standing throughout the entire litigation. And if you don't, uh, that's what happens to it is you get it mooted out or it just gets, gets dismissed. Of course, we'd be remiss if we're going to talk about the awesome litigation tracker that's at shallissue.org, our website. Um, that tracker is administered by Rob. You can find him on Twitter at 2A Updates. And that's just simply at 2A Updates. Rob has been great. Rob tracks cases all over the country, including uh, Maryland Shall Issues uh, cases. Uh, he, he follows state courts, circuit courts, district courts. I don't care where the court is. This guy is incredible, and he, he follows them all. So uh, It's a phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal uh, job he does. So I mean, it's, uh, we've tra- it's great for him that he's allowed us to basically steal his tracker. <laughs> yeah, I was I was so thrilled when he uh, let us put it on our website. And uh, again, we, we thank him for his uh, tireless efforts in allowing us to do so. So it's it's uh, a, a big plus. It makes life a lot easier. Absolutely. So there, uh, kind of some of these things we've talked about. There's so much legal jargon that you know is, is you know we've got. Moot and GVR, and there's you know, uh, you know, amicus briefings, and you know, kind of all these these terms. Is there a good resource for people to go to kind of learn what what some of this stuff is, so that when when they go and they look at our tracker and you know they look at our updates, uh, so that they can kind of have a little better idea of what they're reading. You know, that's a really good question, and <laughs> and I wish I had a good answer. The, the, the hard part about this is so much of this requires a fair amount of legal knowledge ahead of time. So um, there is uh, the Scrotus blog, for example, uh, does a Supreme Court education uh, column from time to time that tries to explain these legal terms to, in plain English and uh, non-lawyer talk. I fall into lawyer talk because I've been a lawyer for 45 years and I don't know any other language. And so it's, it's hard for me to speak of terms as well. It, it is hard because a lot of this presumes an awful lot of knowledge. Like most people don't understand what a case of controversy is. To understand the concept of standing. Why, why would you allow anybody to do this? 
they don't understand why cases courts are uh, passive recipients of cases that can't go out and just correct wrongs on their own motion. Supreme Court, unanimous Supreme Court decision, for example, uh, Justice Ginsburg's decision uh, authored, and which uh, basically wrapped the knuckles of the Ninth Circuit when it appointed amicus to present a, a First Amendment argue that neither of the parties had presented, and decided the case on the basis of the amicus argument that was presented after they, they appointed amicus to present the argument. Supreme Court said unanimously, you can't do that. Sit back and you wait for people to bring you cases and you consider the arguments that they present to you, not arguments you make up on your own and because you want to reach a certain result. I mean, it was a very fine opinion by Justice Ginsburg. And it's dead right. But courts get emotionally invested in some of these cases, and particularly, unfortunately, the Ninth Circuit. And they want to reach a certain result and they'll be damned if they're going to be frustrated by the parties in the process. So speaking of the Supreme Court, we have 10 cases, uh, 10 Second Amendment related cases that we alluded to earlier. I do have a little RSS tracker in one of my browsers and I and I happen to notice it was not updated today. They, uh, the Supreme Court just had a conference yesterday. Uh, we're recording this on Friday. They had a uh, conference on the 11th of Thursday. And by this time last week, I had already seen that uh, the 10 cases had been relisted. Uh, would you? Well, that's would, extraordinary. Um, so normally what happens is that when the case, the Friday conference is where everybody should understand this, cases fully briefed on a petition for certiorari. Like, uh, reply briefs filed, the opposition has been filed, and then the clerk's office, within two or three weeks period, puts it up for the on court's docket to be considered at what's called the Friday conference. Friday conference is where the justices sit around and decide what cases to grant, what cases not to grant, and usually almost all, only 3% of cases are granted. So if it doesn't make the discussion list, it's automatically denied. And the discussion list is decided ahead of time so justices can, can bring up a case at any time during the conference. And if they, if they can't reach a decision or if the justice wants to put it off to a next conference because he hasn't made up his mind or is not prepared or for any reason, it doesn't matter, just because he wants to, uh, it can be then relisted. Now, normally what happens is cases are relisted after uh, the orders come out on the following Monday. On Friday conference, it's usually done on Friday. At the end of the term, they do it on Thursday but they don't release the orders that result from that Friday conference until the following week. That's the normal course. So what happened a week last week, when they listed it right after that Thursday or Friday, that was extraordinary. That hardly ever happened. In fact, as far as I can remember, it never happened. And I've been litigating Supreme Court for 45 years. So we were all surprised by that. And we thought, what is the significance of that? Nobody knew. Nobody's seen it before. We all shrugged. But it didn't matter because it got relisted again. And this time, you know, appear to be going back to their old practice. We'll see what happens on Monday. Uh, we may get a cert grant. Now, if one of those 10 gets granted by the Supreme Court, then it's quite likely that the rest of them will not be relisted at all. They'll simply be held, just as they were all held by the Supreme Court in after in light of the New York City case. You know, all those cases, including three of them, were being held from last term because of the pendency of the New York City case. Because the New York City case presented 
some very important questions of what the standard of review is. Because all those cases were decided on tiers of scrutiny. And if tiers of scrutiny is the wrong legal test, then the Supreme Court's going to send them all back. They're going to GVR them, grant, vacate, and remand them back to the lower courts and says, we've just decided in the New York City case, we've decided that text history tradition is the right standard of review, not tiers of scrutiny. Go back and re-examine it under the right test, which is what they normally will do. They take a lead case, they'll decide the lead case, and they'll GVR all the other cases that present the same or similar issues. Well, they, of course, mooted out in the New York City case. So the next question is, well, are you going to take another Second Amendment case term? In which case it would be briefed over the summer and argued next fall. And we don't know yet. Ten of them are present right now and before the Supreme Court. And Justice Kavanaugh raised the issue because he identified the fact that these cases were pending in his concurrence in the New York City case, where he agreed the case was moot. They also agreed with Justice Alito that the courts have been applying the wrong test and that perhaps one of these 10 cases should be uh, granted cert in order to uh, address that. So four members of the court have articulated that tiers of scrutiny is the wrong test. Justice Kavanaugh was on record of saying that in the Heller 2 case, where he said text tradition is the right test, not tiers of scrutiny. So four members of the court, it only takes four to grant cert. But whether or not they grant cert or not vote to grant cert is often dependent upon whether they think they have a fifth vote. So this is all Supreme Court lore. You, you don't know any of this unless you've been litigating the Supreme Court for a long time. The Supreme Court never tells you why they grant cert. Um, they never tell you why they voted not to grant cert. All you get is an order, cert denied. And once in a while, you get a dissent from people. So I would have grant cert. Uh, you should. We think we should grant cert, but... That's all you get. And so you're left to guess. Read the tea leaves. So I've been reading tea, Supreme Court tea leaves for a long time, and this one's really a mess. And they also have 10 qualified immunity cases uh, that they've been holding for a long time without deciding to, uh, whether to grant cert or deny it. So we don't know what that will be. Those cases have been relisted and relisted over and over. These are hard issues. In the event that a case that is lodged by Maryland shall issue makes it to the Supreme Court, that such a venture is quite expensive. It's very expensive. Just the printing costs alone are, is expensive. There's a filing fee associated with the certiorari petition. The, the, the printing cost is a special print that the Supreme Court requires you to use unless you're in form of offers. Uh, we're not. Um, and you, you, you spend thousands and thousands of dollars just printing the briefs and printing the appendix. The reality is you need money to pay those costs. And then you need money for counsel. Uh, Paul Clement, who's counsel for one of these cases, and it was counsel for the petitioners in the, the New York City case, uh, several years ago, his hourly billing rate was $1,500 an hour. Wow. <laughs> And just to give you an idea, in the HQL litigation on summary judgment, we had two experts on the merits. They each prepared expert reports. Each one of those experts cost $30,000. That's a lot of money. There's nothing cheap about litigation. We need we need uh, funds to be able to do that. I work for free for Maryland Association. I mean, every member of Maryland Association, the, the board and its officers are all volunteers. But we still have to pay costs out of pocket in order to conduct those I mean, there's no way around. So if you, we need support 
We need members who are willing to help us in this endeavor. I mean, it's the best dollars you'll ever spend in terms of protection of your constitutional rights. But you also get emails from us that tell you what's going on in the state legislature. You get to ask us questions. We help people who actually file for carry permits. We help them with the process, no guarantees, of course, but we help them understand how the process works. We help people do uh, HQL uh, understand how that process works. We, we, part of our mission is to educate people on, on the gun laws of Maryland and considering how difficult the gun laws of Maryland are. That's really hard at times. Yet we're all volunteers, so we need people not to be free riders on this. There's a large community in Maryland, people who are gun owners, and their rights are being affected no less than MSI members. And those people need to stand up for their rights as well, because we can't represent everybody without help. Uh, the easiest way to support Maryland Shall Issue is to become a member. We have memberships yeah. at all sorts of different levels. We have uh, memberships starting at a student level, very inexpensive for those who have student IDs. Additionally, our general memberships start 25 bucks. You think about uh, maybe a box or two of nine millimeter. Well, that's what your membership is. And your membership helps us educate Maryland's gun owners, helps swing the bat for you before the legislature, and helps us lodge legal challenge when they need to be filed. And being a member of MSI also uh, allows you to become a member of the Associated Gun Clubs of Maryland's um, state-of-the-art firing range out in, in Howard County. Uh, it allows you to get a range badge there that because we're an associated member of that. So you actually have a very real tangible benefit associated with being a member. You get to shoot on a state-of-the-art range. It's a it's That's a great it. range for anyone who's not been out there yet. It's a, it's a wonderful place. Yes, and one of the things we did was to give that benefit to our members so they don't have to become members of other uh, gun clubs or organizations or part of the AGC, so that the mere membership card of the MSI will allow you to get a range badge and shoot uh, on that range. And they have shotgun range, rifle ranges, and pistol ranges. It's a really outstanding range. There are all kinds of benefits to being a member of MSI, but the biggest one is that you help us litigate. Yep. There are the costs associated with the defense of people's rights. And uh, as anyone should know, their Second Amendment uh, rights are not the uh, most stout in this day and age in 2020. They're, they're quite fragile. So uh, the more defense you have for your rights, the better your fellow Marylander, the better yourself will be. Well, people need to care about their rights. Because if you don't care about it, you're going to lose them. That's the hard reality. It's sad, but true. I think we've also kind of reached a point. I think we've also sort of seen a point in society where a lot of people are complacent and take their rights for granted. And I'm not going to lie. Occasionally they come under attack. Uh, Second Amendment rights more than certain other rights, perhaps. But, you know, Mark hit it right on the head. Oh, and it, it's it's something that we're all vulnerable to. It, unless you're really thinking about it, unless you need it in that moment, a lot of people probably don't think about it. And that's not necessarily a fault. That's just a that's just a reality. Uh, but the the reality is these things are fragile. There are always people out there who are going to take advantage of any quiet time to take something away from you, to dictate how you live your life, and how, to dictate uh, what rights you have and don't have. And in Maryland. The Second Amendment rights, your right to protect yourself, is always uh, the one that's most vulnerable. Well, that's because the General Assembly is very hostile, as a rule, 
to the the exercise of Second Amendment, and they don't recognize it as a, a real right. It's not a favorite right. It's That's a right. disfavorite right, and they would love to restrict it as much as they think they can get away with. And they will push the edge of the envelope as hard as they can, and they need to be challenged when they go too far. And unfortunately, uh, as we've seen in this state and many others, not only are we against uh, you know some legislators that have their own personal beliefs, but we're fighting against you know organizations funded by multimillionaires that you know, have bottomless pockets to to fight to take her right away from us. Uh, multi-billionaires, I think, <laughs> what should be used. So, yes, I mean, the organizations are heavily funded, and they have resources to burn, and burn they do. Um, they have no limits on what they can spend and do. So it's, we are, you know, very underfunded when it comes to what we have to face. We have in our favor people who are willing to turn up testify, tell their stories, talk to the legislators, and join us and help contribute. We have, for example, a number of life members who actually contribute $1,000 to become life members of MSI. They don't get any special privileges for that other than a special uh, membership card, but it's, it's a huge help to us. The filing fee in federal district court is $400, just to file a law that's right up front. That's before you get into any other costs at all. The cost of transcripts, got to pay that up front. Experts, got to pay them. They don't work for free. Lawyers don't work for free. What? No, I wish they we, we, we found the one who I did. I'd rather go to the bar, kind of like that. You know, they want to get paid. <laughs> that also speaks to the that also speaks to the robustness of MSI as an organization because Marylanders have MSI standing up for them and. These out-of-state, multi-billionaire-funded gun control groups were standing up to them in a heavily hostile location, uh, the General Assembly, very hostile environment, and we're pushing back. We're, you know, there have been bills that MSI has defeated. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example of a, where we've made a huge difference. I mean, uh, General Assembly passed a long-gone background check bill. And the original perversion, uh, version of that bill that was it would regulate not only sales of long guns, private sales, but also a loan. Gave an example of loaning your, your goose gun to your neighbor. Well, the final version actually passed the General Assembly. We couldn't stop it completely. We stopped it the year before. Was that they struck out the loan provision. The reason that they struck out the loan provision, I know this because I was in the back room, is we convinced the Senate, Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, that legally that there is no way for a federal firearms licensee to do a NICS check is what they required on a loan. And sure enough, the, the counsel for the, that committee talked to the state police. The state police talked to the ATF, the feds, and there's nothing on the form, the 4473, which is how you do a NICS check, that allows any entry for a loan. And so the conclusion was that we can't require a NICS check on the loan if the federal government won't do a NICS check on the loan. Believe it or not, we had to persuade people of that. Well, that would seem obvious, right? But it was a hard role. And we made the same argument in the House, and they ignored us. But we managed to get that point across in the Senate, and that is why loans were struck from that bill. And to his immense credit, Governor Hogan vetoed that bill. 
And uh, Governor Hogan, if you're listening, we do thank you for that veto. At a boy. We asked them to veto. We pointed out that they're busy regulating and criminalizing the loans up at the sale of private sales of long guns for ordinary shotguns. There's no data that indicates that, that private sales of ordinary long guns contribute to crime in the slightest. Meanwhile, they are denying the governor's ability to uh, actually address the absolute explosion of violence in the city of Baltimore. I remember when he vetoed the bill, uh, when he vetoed a handful of bills, he actually referenced that he had given the General Assembly a smorgasbord of, well, I believe he said a comprehensive crime reduction package. It, it just got tabled. It, you know, it died in a desk drawer. And well, he was very it, upset about that. It, it, a lot of it passed the Senate, but it died in the House. And because the House is very hostile to what the government wanted, and the Senate was more willing to listen to reason. So that's not atypical, by the way. So the bill, um, he vetoed the, some of the pet things that the the uh, General Assembly wanted. And he says, well, well, I asked you to address the violence in Baltimore. You refuse to do so, and you pass these things that have no impact on public safety at all. All you're doing is criminalizing ordinary people. And I'm going to veto this because uh, I want you to pass the stuff that I will, I have submitted to you that actually will make a difference. And we made that same argument in our veto request. And, you know, actually, fair point you brought up there about how the bills that the House specifically was really pushing for, uh, they would just criminalize things that have no connection to the crime in Baltimore and would actually hurt law-abiding Maryland gun owners from, you know, hurt their ability to defend themselves. Similar to what happened after the Firearm Safety Act, as they eloquently named it, uh, in, of 2013, we saw the homicide rate in Baltimore double within, I believe it was two years. Right. And a lot of people attribute that to criminals getting more brazen, thinking it's harder for my victims who don't want to break the law and don't want to buy a uh, underground handgun from, you know, off the street corner. It'll be harder for them to defend themselves effectively. Well, and that's the tragedy of Baltimore. There is a lot of people who carry guns and guns illegally because they can't get carry permits. But these people are not criminals. They're people who are afraid. And they're afraid because the crime rate, the violent crime rate in Baltimore has soared through the roof. And they are going to protect themselves regardless of whether or not it's legal for them to be carrying the gun. And even though it's a prohibited offense to be carrying a gun, and we don't advocate that, of course, but you could understand the, the reality associated with that because people are afraid for their lives. And the most effective way to defend your life is use of a fire. That's uh, been seen over and over again. So and I have great sympathy for that, but the state has made this impossible for the people of the city of Baltimore to effectively defend themselves. Law-abiding people who simply don't want to die or be robbed or otherwise abused or be victims of violent crime. But of course, you know, we're the bad ones, we're the bad guys uh, bringing up this idea of personal self-defense as if, you know, it's an anachronism that should be abolished. Uh, the unfortunate truth is there are many in the legislature who uh, view that as the case. And it should be said, Maryland Shell Issue really did, uh, has caused a lot of heartburn in the General Assembly. We had Every town was there. Every town had counsel before the legislature to testify, as did the Brady's. Oh, yeah. 
as yeah. and of course uh, Moms to Men Action. And this is all because we owned um, for there were a number of years where there were no gun control bills moving at all. Maryland shall issue was the bulwark of that. And we, we continue to be, and we are causing a lot of roadblocks. So uh, we might be able to move some ground if we continue to grow and continue to uh, get some footholds. But you know, Maryland shell issue has had effect before this legislature and we will well, progress in the future. And i tell you one thing that made attention with, we defended the rights of the, to get just compensation in the bump stock litigation. And whether or not you like bump stocks or not, kind of irrelevant to the concept. It was public as private property that was legal when it was purchased, illegally owned and illegally used. And they're basically um, banning it uh, so you can no longer possess it. We said that demands just compensation. When you attach a price tag, any price tag, but a substantial price tag, to gun control schemes, people give second thought. So, well, that weird. But how much is that going to cost? And then, golly, that means my pet project here isn't going to have enough funds. And remember, if they they have to find money for this stuff. So it's easier to basically criminalize the law body than they actually pay for the, the stuff that they take. So the idea of bump stock litigation, if you will, the rapid fire trigger litigation, is that if you're going to take our private property, you need to pay for it. Pay up. Pay up. That was one of the that was one of the things that a lot of people were bringing up this past session on home gunsmithing, uh, especially in the house side. Yes. In the house side, you had a uh, few delegates who were just viciously going after, you know, home gunsmithing. Which even some of the other delegates said, "Hey, you know, I do this with my kids. You know, we, this has been a tradition in my family," and. Not one of them had an answer to, okay, well, what about my legally owned property uh, that I had before you legis- you know you legislated it out? what are your what are your thoughts on that? You see, that's the points we're making in the the litigations down before the fourth circuit that we we argued in January is that they don't have the right under the Constitution on the Supreme Court precedent to simply ban stuff as legally owned and legally purchased and, and never been banned. So in the case of bump stocks, for example, there were 10 letter rulings from the ATF, which confirmed that these devices were perfectly legal. There were firearms accessories that weren't regulated by federal law. And, and people relied on that assurance when they went and purchased them. And none of these things have been uh, misused, with the exception of the horrific slaughter in, in Las Vegas. But you don't get to ban somebody's property because somebody else misused their property. Not without paying just compensation for it. And, and that was the point. Now, we don't know how this is going to come out. Uh, the Supreme Court's recently held, a few years ago in 2015, that personal property, as well as real property, i.e. land, is entitled to Fifth Amendment taking its clause protection no less than land is. So the precedent is now there, and the state legislature was laboring under this assumption that they, uh, all they needed was a, a good reason, and they could ban whatever property they want, whenever they wanted. For example, I'll give you the one that rings home for me. If they decided the internal combustion engine was uh, uh, poisoning us all and had to be banned, so they could ban the possession of your automobile if it, had a, if it wasn't completely electric, for example. And they would owe nothing 
for the billions of dollars worth of automobiles they would take in Maryland. Well, I, Is that a I think there's probably some that might actually hold that view. So we should be careful before that seed is planted and that actually becomes a thing. <laughs> well, there are people who hold that view. But in, in the case called Horn, the Supreme Court said uh, that people don't expect their uh, personal, but their, the, the takings clause protects not only the home, but your car. They don't expect your car to be taken any more than expected having your home just taken got to pay just compensation. And that was a personal property case. That case involved racism out in California. So yes. you, know, you do have a constitutional protection here under the taking that protects private property. You don't get to decide something and make it up. So there's a whole set of legal arguments. All of our briefs on this case were, by the way, found on the Maryland Show Issue website. Yeah. If you go to, if anyone goes to shallissue.org and they look under documents, they can find all these filings. Additionally, if you go to the litigation tracker, uh, once again, administered by the wonderful Rob, he has many of those documents uploaded into the case tracker as well, all at no cost to you. But of course, we we uh, we would love a donation for the the knowledge that we are uh, providing you. Well, think what we're giving people basically free is that is access to an enormous amount of information that they can use to educate themselves and make up their own mind. And if they have Precisely. questions. They can send us emails, as they do all the time, or phone lists. And I answer many of those emails and phone calls, and they can ask questions. And this is something that no one else provides. If you have any firearms related questions, we can help you with that. And we're not going to represent you in court. We simply don't have the resources to do that. We can tell you whether or not you may have a good case. Mark? Thank you so much for joining us on the Good Substantial Podcast. Uh, that was my pleasure. Oh, we, we, we'll have to do this again. I'm, sh- I'm sure the listeners would like that too. So, uh, absolutely. I'm happy to do this. This is part of an emphasized mission, which is the, to educate people about the rights and, and duties associated with firearms. So if we get we convince anybody or we give anybody information that we wouldn't otherwise have, this has been time well spent. If any of our listeners want to hear Mark in action, because, you know, this podcast, you have not seen him. Okay, let me do this again. Do it. If any of our listeners would like to see Mark in action on the MSI YouTube page, there are actually uploads of some of Mark's arguments in court. And let me tell you, the podcast does not do justice to Mark's arguments. Well, from your ears, uh, from your lips to God's ears and uh, and to the judge's ears. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not just because you're the special guest right now. (laughs) All right. Do you mind sitting on the fourth circuit? I really would like that. (laughs) All right. Um, You can join us again, Katie, Stephen, and myself here on the MSI's Good Substantial Podcast. You can find us on the website at shallissue.org. You can find all of our social media links there as well as our case trackers. And you can also look up your legislator to find out how friendly or antagonistic they are towards your rights um, in our in our bill tracker. So again, there's one, one pitch that I would like to make and that I urge people to do this seriously is get to know your legislator using yes. our tracker or the Maryland State General Assembly um, as a website. All you have to do is enter your address, and you will find out not only who your legislators are, federal and state, but you will find out how to contact them. And they all have district offices. They're all open to hearing from constituents. 
They all want to hear from constituents. And it doesn't matter if your legislator is hostile to Second Amendment or favorable to Second Amendment. You need to have an opportunity to talk to them. So please, by all means, get to know them and let them know how you feel. You are a constituent. They can't simply say, go away. They will listen to you. If only because they need your vote because elections are decided on the margins. So don't anyone ever tell me that their vote doesn't count because of too many cases of elections being decided by very few votes. All right. With that, we will catch you next time on the Good Substantial Podcast.